all the latest updates on your local and regional sports. This is Sports Talk on 92 WICB Ithaca. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of WICB Sports Talk. I'm your host for this week, Dane Richardson. A fire show coming at you this week. We have a lot to talk about, including the whole college football situation, some Buffalo Bills, playoff hockey, and playoff basketball. We'll throw in some baseball as well. We can't forget Michael Memis coming at you with a great couple of interviews. But first, let's take a look at last week's headlines. Unfortunately, we were not able to have sports talk last week due to Hurricane Isaias. We hope everyone's okay after that. The New York Rangers got swept out of the qualifying round by the Carolina Hurricanes 3-0. And they got a chance at winning the number one pick with that loss. More on that later. Hint, hint. The other New York team on the ice, the Islanders, took the reins in their qualifying round series against the Florida Panthers, winning in four games. They're now matched up against the Washington Capitals in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Aaron Judge and the seemingly unbeatable New York Yankees, or at least what it looked like early on, hit a bump in the road, losing three of four against the Rays last week. Should be a tight race to the finish in that division, but with this year's playoff format, you'd expect both teams to get in the playoffs. The Mets continue to look like the Mets average at best. Well, the Giants, Jets, and the Bills continue training camp, hoping to start the season on time. Starting things off, I wanted to address the college football situation. Frankly, because I have a lot to say about it, and I want to get it out of the way. Let's start with background knowledge. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 conferences essentially married to each other. They played each other in the Rose Bowl for gosh knows how long. They just postponed their football seasons until the spring. Well, the other three, Power Five conferences, the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 still plan on moving forward with the fall season. A lot of players and coaches have said that players will be safer on campus following protocols than out in the open not playing football. That may be true. However, the main format that seems to be working is in America is the bubble format. So why am I not hearing the NCAA or these conferences about creating a bubble for these players? Sure, they're testing more frequently. But the schools are still bringing back students, non-athletes, from all around the country to their campuses. You can try as hard as you want to isolate them from the rest of the student body, but it's impossible. Unless they don't go to class. Also, I don't mean to insult any of these young men's intellectual prowess, but these are 19 to 22-year-old young men we're talking about. You know a few of them, that's probably an understatement, are going to make the wrong decisions. Heck, just look at Major League Baseball. Miami Marlins nearly shut down the league four games into the season this year. Great leadership, Rob Manfred. Not going to get into him, but leadership I will. And now it's the St. Louis Cardinals with a COVID outbreak. They're 2-3 and three in the season. They haven't played in over two weeks. Their last game was on July 29th. And this is with no fans in the stands, not being exposed to a whole campus of students. And it's baseball, baseball, for gosh sakes. A sport where you can social distance, sort of. In football, you're literally crashing into your opponent with harsh contact almost every play. If this is happening with baseball, what do you expect to happen with college football? It's not like we've seen the sport work, but it's like people are being trial and error with this. No, it's a pandemic. People's lives are at risk. It just seems as if these schools are prioritizing a sport over actual school, which is what they're supposed to be, a school, right? Don't forget, have we seen a sport successfully play with this many players and personnel on one team? College obviously has more players in the NFL. Let's say 60 players on both sides plus all the coaches. That's just an estimate. Medical personnel and whoever else you need. It's not logical with that many people. I mean, the last few years, the NFL and college football have been big on player safety, especially with all the concussions, CTE, the targeting penalty, which has been great. It's protected the players more. 
and now you're playing under these circumstances? So much for player safety. Mark Emmert, commissioner of the NCAA. Where are you? I'm a college football fan like everyone else. I want to see college football be played under the right circumstances. But why isn't there? Why hasn't there been a comprehensive plan for all Division I football that includes appropriate safety and health protocols and having everyone play in the same season? It's like all the states, in this case the conferences, are making all the decisions and there's no federal government, which would be the NCAA. Prior proper preparation prevents piss-poor performance. Don't ask me where I got that. What's wrong with playing in the spring? Yes, universities are going to have to work things out with other athletic programs who play in that season, but you have all the time in the world to figure all that out. Yes, a lot of the Southeastern schools who rely so much on football to get a lot of their athletic revenue, they're going to lose a good amount of money. But is it worth saving some lives? I think it is. I could be wrong on all this, and it remains to be seen. But to the SEC, the Big 12, the ACC, and their fans, bless their hearts. Better be safe than sorry. That's all I'm saying. I'm done. Someone who does have a plan, however, with their conference and all of Division Three is Ithaca College. And although you heard it a couple weeks ago, we're giving it to you again. Here's Michael Memes' interview with Ithaca College Athletic Director Susan Bassett. The big news that happened last week was Ithaca College canceled all their fall sports. What went into that? Maybe what was the final factor that caused the sports to end up being canceled for the fall? So let me clarify, and this is really important. We have suspended fall sport competition, but we will still fully engage with our fall sport teams with practices and training and the same with winter and spring sports. We have been working really intensively since May to take the guidance from the NCAA, the CDC, our local health department, Reopening America, and all of the information that is current from the scientific community on the safe return to sport. And our team physician, Dr. Andy Getson, and our head athletic trainer, Mike Matheny, have been doing really an enormous amount of work to take all of those various pieces of information and guidelines and synthesize it into a working framework for us to be able to re-engage in athletics safely. So we really feel strongly that we're able to participate in training and practices internally. What drove the decision to suspend fall sport competition is the challenge of traveling to other schools or bringing other schools to our campus when we know there's going to be restrictions on travel and bringing people to campus. So it came as a consensus decision with the Liberty League, which is our playing partner, our primary affiliation. And as you were watching, as we all watched the Division Three national landscape, conference after conference was announcing the cancellation of fall sport competition. Some say suspend, some say postpone to the spring. We are choosing the word suspend. I don't anticipate that that is suddenly going to change on October 1st. 
but our attitude and what the college has pursued has been a phased approach with the best available information and going step by step. Honestly, as we looked at the national landscape and we reconciled the ability to bring people to campus or travel against the restrictions that every one of our students will face when they return to campus, we just felt like athletics competition for the fall sports was really not advisable, irresponsible at this point. So they are officially suspended. You mentioned how some schools are framing this as a possible postponement till the spring. So is there a possibility that these fall sports like football, like soccer, like any sport will have competition in the winter season or the spring season? Yes. So there has been a lot of discussion and we believe that we're we're going to hear something from the NCAA soon that might provide a framework to engage in spring sport competition, or I'm sorry, bring the fall sports to the spring. We are going to keep our options open and monitor that. I have to be honest, I think it will be difficult for us because of the density on our campus with the shared facilities and unfortunately our inclement weather to try to engage in all of our outdoor fall sports in the spring. But I would never say never. I could never have imagined that we'd be in the situation that we're in right now. Uh, And I think we owe it to our students and ourselves to just monitor and keep options open and make the best possible decisions as circumstances evolve. You also mentioned how teams will still be doing training and practices. Now, will that be exactly the same or is it going to go to a more virtual approach or different in terms of players allowed so that they can be socially distant? Right. It will definitely be very different than anything we have done. We will wear masks except during the actual act of the training. So we'll be socially distanced and in very small groups. Most of what we're going to do will be outside where there's a reduction in the transmission of the disease. So we're, we're modifying all of our approaches and protocols. It will be very different moving forward. I know that some professional athletes have used masks where it doesn't affect their ability to breathe at all while participating in athletic activity. Is there a possibility that Ithaca will be able to get those types of masks in the future for athletic competition? We will certainly try. And honestly, everything has changed so quickly. It is evolving from even the testing. And one of the big components of what we will do is daily symptom checks. So student-athletes will have to complete a kind of a questionnaire on their on an app on their phone every day before they're allowed to participate describing their symptoms or lack of symptoms. And um, we're also going to have to come up with a process for contact tracing so we know who everybody has been with. But upon return, every Ithaca College employee and student will be tested for COVID. And if you test negative, you will then be able to move into what we're calling phase two of uh, re-engagement of athletics, which will be a very gradual re-socialization process. Now, how does this all affect club sports like rugby, which Ithaca is very good at, 
as well as intramural sports? We do expect to engage our programming for club sports and intramurals. We had a club sport meeting with participants on Thursday night. Uh, we had about 75 students participate in the meeting, and we shared with them that our path forward will be similar as that of intercollegiate athletics, where there will be no external competition, but we will be working hard to help them through a phased resocialization plans so that they can engage in their activities as well. The men's rugby coach, Anne-Marie Farrell, has shared with us that they're planning a no-contact rugby approach. Uh, so they're modifying their playing and practice rules. And so we will implement that for those sports. So it's going to be a great deal of detail work and case by case. Every sport is a little bit different, but our focus and our priority is to determine a path forward for engagement in all of our physical activities, whether it be fitness, instructional programs, recreational programs, club sports, and intramurals. We're hoping to have a wide range of opportunities for our students to engage in when they return to campus. Now, the Liberty League, they canceled all competition and championships through December 31st. However, the winter season usually does start in around November, mid to late November. So if Ithaca is in a pretty good situation in terms of handling this, and it's not a lot of case in Topkeys County, is it possible that winter sports will have competitions, but just not in conference? Yes. Th so that was articulated that way by design to allow each school the autonomy to arrange for non-conference competition if the situation would allow it or you know each school would allow it as you know we are going to return to remote instruction at thanksgiving so whether or not we would compete in november or december in our winter sports remains an open question to check out the rest of my interview with Susan Bassett, check out WICB SoundCloud or WICB.org. As an IC student, we hope the athletes can get back to playing in a safe manner so us here at WICB, BIC, and ICTV can get back to doing what we love, that's covering sports events. I think Susan Bassett was and has been really insightful and transparent with all the athletes and the Ithaca College community, which is important moving forward. Getting back to the bigger New York sports stage, the Yankees got back on track by sweeping the Atlanta Braves in a two-game set at home. We saw Clint Frazier unleash his talents in the first game as a Yankee in 2020, went three for four, a home run in his first at-bat, by the way, a double, a single, two-run score. As an Ithaca College guy, I'm not supposed to like red, but I was cheering for Red Thunder last night. Anyone who follows baseball knows where I'm going with this, but what do you do with the Yankee outfield? Poor Giancarlo Stanton, who the last two seasons has looked like a piece of glass for the Yankees. So Frazier's going to get his fair share of at-bats for the time being, especially with Stanton on the injured list. However, you're not going to get rid of him because of his giant contract. Judge is basically God to Yankee fans. And you signed last year Aaron Hicks to a seven-year, $70 million extension. All right, just get rid of Mike Talkman then. Nope, can't do that. Ever since last summer, he's played like an everyday player. Hit 277 in 87 games last year with 13 homers. Hitting 300 this year. Has speed on the base pass. It's tough for me to say this, but this should be Brett Gardner's last year in pinstripes. He hasn't hit well this season. By far the oldest. I get he hit 28 homers, a career high for him last season. But you can't tell me you're going to get more longevity out of Gardner than you are of the other outfielders. 
and stop sending down Clint Frazier, please. This man would literally be an everyday outfielder and start on 80% of big league teams. The man has all-star potential, and he showed it last night. Everyone in baseball knows it. It's going to be tough to part ways with whoever the Yankees decide to give up on. All I'm saying is that it shouldn't be Clint Frazier. Guy's an all-star. You know who else is an all-star? Michael Memes. I mentioned at the top of the show, he had some great guests he got to talk to, including Ithaca College alum and Philadelphia Eagles chef, Tim Lopez. Excited for that one. Let's hear it. I guess the first question is, you were with the Eagles for 13 years, and now you have moved on. A lot of people dream of working for a professional team. So why did you decide to move on from the Philadelphia Eagles? Well, it wasn't an easy decision. That was literally probably one of the best dream jobs that a chef can have is feeding people that are constantly hungry. And those football players are constantly hungry. One of the dream jobs that I always wanted as a chef was to cook in an environment where we were guaranteed to make a lot of food, but make a lot of quality food, make a lot of people happy with our food. And nobody's happier than an athlete because they're always hungry. I decided to leave after a long, hard soul searching because I'd been doing it for well over a decade, 13 years. And I had an opportunity to pass on some of the skills that I have learned and used and that I've grown with over the years at the Eagles to the next generation of chefs in Philadelphia. So when the opportunity came up, I initially thought, no, you know what? I, I'm probably going to just stay with the Eagles. But the more I thought about it, the more the life of a teacher, the hours of a teacher, and the reward of a teacher, of being able to help the next generation of chefs go on to possibly go cook for the Eagles in Philadelphia as well, or go on to a different sports team, open up a restaurant, a food truck. I mean, there's a million different things that you can do as a chef in this world. And I have a lot to teach and I have a lot of stories and I have a lot of experience that I want to share. So, and like I said, the hours, the hours was a big part of it. Cooking for a football team almost seven days a week takes its toll on you with the hours per day. Sometimes we'd be in there anywhere from 12 to 18 hour days, depending on what was needed and if it was crunch time, if it was game time. And it's going to be a different mindset for me working at the school, but I will put my same passion into it. You mentioned long hours. Could you describe how much you have to, had to do per week with the Eagles? Like how much food you had to make, all the materials needed, how many chefs you had with you, just everything involved in that massive process. It's an incredibly huge process. And ironically, she asked that question because that's exactly what we're handling on my own podcast, Feeding with the Birds. This season and season four, we're looking back at my 13 years at the Philadelphia Eagles, and I'm able to draw from memory some of the amazing quantities of food to get these guys, you know, fed and get them fueled up and on the field. I mean, on an average day during the football season, let's take breakfast, for example. We're looking at anywhere between 350 to 400 fresh cracked eggs every day. We're looking at anywhere from 40 to 50 pounds of breakfast meat, anywhere around 100 to 150 pounds of fresh cut fruit, 50 pounds of potatoes and hash browns, a multitude of pancakes, more waffles than you or I could probably ever eat in one sitting, and just an incredible amount of omelets and sandwiches and wraps and breakfast delights. I mean, think about going to like a hotel spread, best breakfast buffet you could find every single day at the Philadelphia Eagles, and we're serving a football team and one of those guys especially if he's on defense those guys know how to eat and they can put away probably two to three times what 
you or I would put away in a single meal. But they burn it off like that. I mean, they are on that field. They're in the weight room. They're running drills. They're doing practices. And so as much as like, wow, I could never eat that. Or I don't see how these athletes eat that and then go, you know, run a 40. They do it because their bodies need that fuel and they burn it off real quickly. So yeah, it was always a challenge to keep up with the demands of a healthy football team and not only give them what they wanted to eat, but give them what they needed to eat and focus on their nutrition. Lunchtime, we might go through, I would say at least 80 or 90 pounds of uh, chicken products, many, many, many fresh cut steaks. I'd say anywhere between 40 to 50 pounds of steak. We'd always have a seafood option. There'd be multiple stations throughout our cafeteria, guaranteed to give as many options as possible to our football team and to our building staff, to our coaches, to our trainers. Options is a huge thing in the Philadelphia Eagles cafeteria. You have to be able to come in and based on what your body needs to hit that field or hit the weight room or work with these guys training them or even just our front office staff just to be there day after day. There was different plans in place, different foods, different stations that appealed to any diet. And it was a massive undertaking and it was always exciting. Now you mentioned the caloric intake that these players consume per day as well as burn per day. So we do see a lot of retired players. They don't, they look out of playing shape. And I'm thinking that could possibly because it be due to that caloric intake. So how hard is it for, for someone to go from that athlete's diet where they're eating a lot per day, but they're also burning it off to going to a diet that maybe me or you would have? I think it would be very hard to do. I mean, I can't speak too much from a nutritional standpoint. We had nutritional coordinators and liaisons in place that worked with our executive chef, that worked with us in the cafeteria and the fuel bar down the hall to scan these guys' body mass index and, and check out where they're coming from. And based on the position they're playing, how much they're working out, the time of year, what their individual needs were, you had to tailor their diet to that. When a lot of these guys leave the NFL and they retire or say they move on to a different career, they're not hitting their bodies as hard every day. I mean, our guys are at the Eagles were working out almost every day. There were morning and afternoon lifts. There was practice on and off the field. There were individual drills for different positions. And to suddenly not have that be part of your life and start to eat in a way that you know some some guys i mean i'm 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 not really seeing too much of this first person, but I hear, I see some guys, some alumni that come back and visit and either like the guy was like bulked up and then he's super thin. And it's because he doesn't need to eat that huge amount of calories every day because he's not burning it off. There's other guys that were super thin that kind of gain a lot of weight after football because the whole time they were there, like say a wide receiver or a tight end or, or somebody that needed to be light and fast and lean doesn't maybe necessarily have to keep up with that type of diet after football. So you see you see a bunch of guys kind of behaving and eating differently after football. But during football, it's all very rigorous. It's all very planned out. The diets are like down to the calorie, what they need to consume to be spectacular on the field. And you also mentioned podcasts, Feeding the Birds, and that's something you did all with the Eagles and you're continuing to do it for at least for now. And you were a communications major at IC. So how did maybe your classes or your major at Ithaca College help you in doing that podcast? The biggest thing I learned from communications is how to talk to people. I know sometimes we might take that for granted in any type of job. And it's just a way that, you know, when you're running a, a podcast or an interview type show, you have to make the person feel comfortable talking to you and you have to be comfortable talking to them. And a lot of what I learned in the communications and corporate communications uh, departments at IC was a way to present myself and my ideas clearly 
professionally and you want to put your audience at ease and also get them to be interested in what you have to say. Because I could talk to football players all day long. If they don't care what I'm talking about, if I don't connect it to them, I'm not going to get a good interview at You know, I could talk with Lane Johnson or uh, Brandon Graham about chicken fried steak. Yeah, they love it. But why do they care about talking about it with me? And so a lot of the ways that I used some of those skills was just try to get personal with them on a level and get personal with the communication as it related to food and get them to share their stories of growing up, what it was like to eat as a collegiate athlete versus what it's like to eat in the NFL. What are their cheat foods? What are, what are their guilty pleasures? It just kind of, for lack of a better word, it kind of humanizes these guys that are larger than life on your TV that are charging that field every Sunday and brings them down to your level. So, you know, they kind of eat just like I do but maybe they don't eat it all the time because, you know, they're well-oiled machines that have to play football. You know, we're just watching them on the TV. We're not those guys. But to be able to kind of just bring out some more of that personality that they have. And I think working uh, with the communications department kind of gave me a way to do that. It also helped me connect with my peers in the culinary industry and give me a lot better way. I know something I took a lot from corporate communications was conflict management. In communication, a busy kitchen that's hot and not a lot of space to work, you definitely need some conflict management. So I use those skills every single day in the kitchen. I picked up my cooking skills from my grandmother and then went to a another school and learned all the cooking techniques and then got in, in, into being a chef full time. But there's never a day where I didn't utilize my IC degree. I just never thought I'd use it in that way. To listen to and watch my entire interview with Tim, Check out ICTV Sports Facebook page. Interesting guy, and what a cool job being a chef for a pro football team or any pro sports franchise. Something. Another awesome job by Michael as well. Hopefully he'll cook up some more interviews in the future. Pun intended right there. Could not go show without talking about some playoff hockey and playoff basketball. The Rangers, as I said earlier, they obviously got swept by the Carolina Hurricanes, but I guess you could say that was a blessing in disguise. On Monday, they won the number one pick in the NHL draft lottery. And unless you're a crazy man, you know they're going to go with winger Alexi Lafreniere with the number one pick. I'm not a Ranger fan by any means, but I'd be lying saying their future isn't bright. It's as bright as anyone in the NHL. The bread man, Artemi Panarin, Capocacco, who was taken number two overall in the 2019 draft, and now another franchise cornerstone in Lafreniere. You got Rangers fans dreaming of multiple Stanley Cups. Deservedly so. Just look at it. Likely a few years away, but we'll have to see. Now, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but the guy who dropped the Rangers ball accidentally had to pull it back out, put it back in. I mean, you can't go back and change it, but to say the least, not the best look for the NHL. I don't think it was rigged, but come on. Man. The Islanders, meanwhile, they won game one of their first round series against the Washington Capitals. Big storyline in that series, the Islanders head coach Barry Trotz facing off against his former club, who we won a Stanley Cup with just two years ago back in 2018. Anthony Beauvillier, Brock Nelson, Josh Bailey. That line was fantastic for New York in the qualifying round against Florida. And how will defenseman for the Capitals, Norris Trophy finalist John Carlson, factor into the series after being out the whole qualifying round? Very important right there. The Capitals went 1-1-1 in the round robin against the Lightning, the Bruins, and the Flyers. Over to basketball, got to give a huge shout-out to Jock Vaughn, the interim head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. This man has his group playing extremely hard in the NBA bubble, and no one expected them to do anything. They're without the majority of their stars, almost all of them. And yet, role players such as Jeremiah Martin, who I didn't even know before the bubble, Joe Harris, Karis LeVert, who's not really a role player, but he's playing great, don't expect the Nets to go anywhere this year. But when fully healthy, 
KD, Kyrie, DeAndre Jordan, Spencer Dinwiddie, who, by the way, are all not playing for the Nets in Orlando right now. This team should be top three in the league with those guys. Before we go, congrats to the head coach of the Buffalo Bills, Sean McDermott. The man just signed a six-year extension through the year 2025. Only 25 and 23 through three seasons at the helm of the Bills. And you'd think, why so much stress? Well, the man has gotten to the Bills, the Bills to the playoffs twice, I believe. It was like an 18-year drought. And if it wasn't for Deshaun Watson's heroics last year, they would have moved on. They have arguably the best defense in the NFL. And I don't think that I've ever said this in my life, but Tom Brady's out of the, out of the division. From New England to Tampa Bay. Now the Bills are favorites in the AFC East. Good for them and Bills Mafia. Of course, it would be very Bill-like if the season wasn't played and they were the favorites. It's just how things go, right? That'll wrap up this week's edition of WICB Sports Talk. Special thanks again to Michael Memes and Clay Davis, as well as our radio advisor, Jeremy Menard. Come on back next week as we'll have lots of action to discuss. For everyone at WICB and VIC, I'm Dane Richardson. We'll see you next time.